What I'd like to do tonight is obviously we've got someone special here tonight, and the guest is about the guest speaker. Uh, it's good to see us near and the humans there, Bill. Um, and obviously we're talking about uh, Greg Harris, fantastic uh, life in sport. Rugby has been exceptional, exceptional. Been one of the foundation people of obviously Sydney Uni Rugby. Has played, uh, I believe, one year of rugby league. One year of rugby league with Cronulla Sharks, so it was the bunnies. Um, has represented Sydney and obviously Australian universities. Actually got involved with uh, uh, Aussie Rules. Has been a, been part of the fibre of Sydney Aussie Rules and obviously coached at um, a level of the under-19s of the Sydney Swans and been chairman of selectors, I believe, of the Sydney Swans. And obviously got asked one, uh, at one stage to train with Richmond. So we're talking about a person that's uh, been, in, been in some great opportunities with sport. What's even greater is that, um, that Greg has been obviously director of uh, Sydney University Sport, which is a massive thing, massive uh, vehicle in regards to not only rugby but sport in Australia. There's so many Olympians and so many people coming out of that. 2008-2009 was the CEO of the Western Force and um, in recent times um, he was consultant down there at the Melbourne Rebels. He's here tonight as representative chief, as chief executive of RUPA, which is a players' union, and all I can say to you from my point of view, I actually went and played rugby in South Africa in 95 on a professional contract when the game went professional. And suddenly you were just sitting there going, what was all this about? Because people were coming at you and saying, we're going to start a world circus of rugby and there's going to be a lot of money involved. From a purist who just went out there and loved the game and played the game, the old levels, saw the world, suddenly that came on. So I'm sure that Greg's going to touch on a, on a, a lot of aspects of where the game's uh, come to in regards to professional athletes. But I think what I'd like to just simply say to you is let's hand it over to Greg and hear, obviously, his, how he's going with, with Rupert and sport and obviously um, and be interested to have Q&A after that. Cheers, uh, Moose. Uh, you're allowed to be called Moose here at this formal proceedings. I'm not sure, mate. Because uh, <laughs> see you carry a lot of your rugby friends into this fraternity here, mate. I uh, also noted that when you were uh, saying what you like about this club, I thought it was pretty simple. You liked to say beer, but uh, that goes without saying for you, though, mate. The, uh, also very pleased that you mentioned that people who pay $200 to, uh, to hear me say a few words. I think you've got me a little bit inflated there, old champ, but... <laughs> Um, as per usual, when somebody does an introduction like that, uh, Adrian's probably stolen the first part of my address that uh, why I'm here and uh, my own background was that I, I grew up in Sydney playing AFL um, so, uh, and had a scholarship to go to University of Sydney here, which I didn't have to go to University of Melbourne. So my AFL career was basically going to go to Melbourne and play at Richmond, but I stayed in Sydney and played rugby instead. And was fairly fortunate to play some representative rugby for the Sydney team for uh, number eight there for three years and then when I uh, graduated from uh, uni I had a season league with Cronulla and then went back to AFL again um, when I taught at Sydney Boys High and then had a bit of success there as captain coach of East Sydney um, and then worked full time with the Swans in uh, the Elliston days in uh, uh, 86 and 87 as the as the development manager for the AFL and the Swans in Sydney, so I've got a fair bit of background in the uh, uh, in in AFL, um, also in rugby and uh, rugby league. But 
following that, I end up going back and uh, coaching the Swans under-19s for three years, from 89 to 91, and I was chairman of selectors of the Swans from 94 to uh, 96, which was the year we went to the grand final. Um, in 96, I'm knocked off by uh, by North Melbourne. So, but career-wise, in 92, I uh, left teaching and, and started work at Sydney University Sport, which was an interesting challenge, because at the time, one of the deputy vice-chancellors who was interviewing me for the job, it mentioned to me, why uh, do you want to take this position on and why wouldn't you want to stay in the education department? And uh, for mine, it was a bit like uh, taking on the, uh, the worst pub uh, in the best town uh, because there was so much uh, obvious potential there. Well, I ended up leaving the, the university uh, there 16 years later. By the time we had, without doubt, the premier sports department um, of any university in Australia. With a lot of those things... Um, there was a vision, and um, if you had asked me when I'd left 16 years later, did I have this, that, that, that vision where we would finish up with respect to not only our, um, the rugby program, which is very, very self-evident for, for those of you naturally here who are rugby followers, but across rowing, swimming, water, polo, cricket, etc. Um, the, the, the vision wasn't there when we started, but as with most things, you keep, uh, as every, every step you take, you, you see new opportunities unfold and you take those opportunities. And uh, I think that Australian rugby is in a very similar position at the present that um, uh, I wrote in our newsletter last week, The Only Way Is Up. I didn't realise that the result was going to be quite as bad as it was on Saturday night to uh, reinforce the, uh, my sentiments in the newsletter. Um, yeah, it's true I had a season of League at Cronulla, only one season. Um, we didn't have the peptides then, so... <laughs> Uh, didn't help me, so I left. Rupa, um, which is, uh, um, I, I suppose I should come back to when I left Sydney University, I uh, went over to the West and ran the Western Force for 18 months, um, which gave me a fairly good insight into a lot of the management of Australian rugby. And I'd like to think that um, a lot of the reasons why uh, the challenges within Australian rugby are very much structural and that uh, Australian rugby has some serious problems as far as the competition, the Super Rugby competition in which it plays in, um, and also the way in which the uh, contracting for players is structured. So it was a fairly, uh, let's say, natural thing in one way for myself, um, because to come back here and look at the position representing the players and the player association, because... One of the things that I first walked into when I went to Perth was um, the fact that a number of players were on uh, firepower contracts, third-party contracts. I imagine most of you have read the City Morning Herald and the articles about firepower. Well, they make the Melbourne Storm look fairly amateurish um, and small-time because uh, within walking in, I had to sit down with those players who had um, had their agreements with firepower not on it. And as far as the players were concerned, those, uh, those contracts with the third party were part of the, their agreement to come and play with the Western Force. When you look at it and uh, at that stage, unbeknownst to myself, that the contracting rules in Australian rugby at that time were such that you could only pay a player the same amount of money uh, to play rugby for the Reds, for the Waratahs, for the Brumbies for the new franchise in Perth. So if I was offered a contract for, 
you know, the maximum contract which you could earn then from a Super Rugby club was in the order of including remuneration and, and, and value of match payments and, and other benefits of $213,000 a year. That's all a player could earn from any of those four franchises. Now, if you're a top player, you're earning far in excess of that. So when you look at it and you say, well, why would a player leave Sydney, Brisbane or Canberra to go to relocate to Perth when all he's going to be paid is the same amount of money as the, on the West Coast as the East Coast? The only differential that could come into play was if he received a third-party payment. And he couldn't receive a third-party payment prior to executing the contract for the same amount of money as he'd earn on the, on the uh, East Coast, on the West Coast. Now, that was the case in today's scenario of the mining sector. We've got uh, people who are cleaners um, working in the Pilbara for $100,000 a year, people who are cleaners working on the East Coast for $30,000 a year. It seems to me that the actual contracting process was, uh, you know, for a new franchise, they couldn't pay any more money except for the third parties. All of a sudden, the firepower situation arose, and um, the extent of that was in excess of $1.5 million a year owed to players from those firepower contracts. So if you'd like to walk into your own jobs and sit in front of your core staff um, and your top performers and see that that was on Monday morning and see that they were actually promised that money from somebody who was outside the organisation but they expected the organisation to be able to come up with a solution to that problem and the organisation wasn't allowed to pay the money itself, you could see full well that the, um, the problems that had been created were created by the system. So for me to come back and actually get an opportunity to work with the Players Association to address some of those issues was very important. The Players Association itself basically has two core functions. One is to look after the workplace entitlements of the, uh, the players and the other one is to look after their education and welfare. Uh, we run on very small budgets, about a million dollars in either of those channels. Um, and when we look at the workplace entitlements, it means that the players actually have a standard contract, that they have a minimum set of working conditions, um, and that, you know, such as that you would experience yourself, leave provisions, etc. Um, so we look after their entitlements. The education and welfare component, you look at it and you say that professional footballers, gee, they all get paid so much money, but at the end of the day, the average professional footballer's career would last two to three years. And what we really do is we take those players out of their normal career stream or their education and put them in a, a, a full-time role as a, as a footballer. Now, then we re-inject them back in after two or three years. So the game has a responsibility on two areas. One is to actually look after that player so that they're not too disadvantaged when they go back into the, the normal stream of education or career. But two, I mean, they, the game has a responsibility that they provide those players with education and awareness of what their, their responsibilities are. Now, we all know that in the media do their, you know, their, their most to to advertise the misgivings of players when they make mistakes. And that's quite often what I get um, commented to about, about, you know, you know, players are so well paid, they looked after so well, etc. Um, you know, what do we have to put up with them making their mistakes uh, off the field, their poor behaviour? Fortunately, in our game, it's nowhere near the, um, the area of concern as it is with some of the other codes. But at the end of the day... Um, Players are like anybody in society. Some of them are going to make mistakes and some of them uh, are going to be great model citizens. I think we, um, we have a, 
a pretty good record of, uh, of, the, of the latter rather than the former. One of the big things for our, uh, for our organisation, the Players Association, is that um, within our collective bargaining agreement with the rugby bodies, notably the ARU, the players as a whole receive 26% of the rugby revenues. <coughs> what does that mean? It means that if the fortunes of Australian rugby um, are good, then the players are entitled to receive uh, you know, a good remuneration as a whole. Right? If, they, if, the, if the game itself contracts, its revenues contract, then the players as well have to look at how much money they can earn out of the game. Most of the other codes operate around about 26%. In rugby, uh, that's, we have that agreed to. Over the last few years, we've actually had between 30 to 34%. And it's um, probably fairly well advertised or, or, or been uh, uh, spoken about that the ARU is looking at uh, some of the necessities to, uh, to, to cut some of the player payments. For one of the reasons why we are unique in the Australian sporting landscape is that our match payments or, or our player remuneration Right. receives a lot of pressure, upward pressure, from the international marketplace. The AFL, the NRL, uh, can control their costs through salary caps, which you know, we can also impose salary caps, but the bottom line is that our players can actually receive offers from Japan and Europe, and the AFL and the NRL is nowhere near those, those uh, pressures. So, I mean... For this game, uh, for rugby, the challenges are far, far greater than the other codes as far as the, uh, the pressure on them for, their, uh, for, for the cost of the players. Where that comes back to us is to say that, OK, we, we are aware of the, the pressures that the game's under at the present time, but we are collective bargaining agreement runs for another two years. At the moment, we're heavily involved with um, with the ARU in discussions about not only player entitlements, but also development pathways for players. Last year, I wrote a piece um, which received a fair amount of coverage, back page of the, uh, of the Australian. I don't know how many of you read the Australian or Wayne Smith, but Wayne's fairly good at making... Uh, on one hand, Wayne was very critical of uh, Robbie Deans. Um, on the other hand, Brett Harris um, wrote a, a contradictory piece gave me the opportunity to come out and actually write a uh, piece called The Jockey, The Horse, The Trainer, uh, which we put on our website and which uh, Smith saw as a great opportunity to put some, uh, some back page coverage in the Australian. And basically what it was about is that if we look at the fortunes of Australian rugby, they're very much dependent upon... They're no different, as I put in my article, that, I mean, a black caviar performance. Is it the horse? Yeah, sure, it's to do with black caviar. Is it? Is it... The, is it the trainer, which is the program which is mapped out for Black Caviar, and is it the jockey, which I... It's the jockey for mine, the jockey, the horse, the trainer. The jockey's the coach, the horse is the footballers you've got, and the trainer is the program which we've got in place, and that's the high-performance program, and the development of the athletes, which Australian rugby has, available to play for the Wallabies. The reason why Smith liked to grab hold of it was because, frankly, from my perspective, and it's a massive debate in Australian rugby at the present time about whether or not club rugby is the uh, uh, in Sydney and Queensland, you know, they're the uh, the base from which our players come. One of the biggest problems that this code has is that when you had those two competitions trying to feed two 
Super Rugby teams and three Super Rugby teams, they could do it. The problem is that those two competitions now have to feed five Super Rugby teams. And the problem you've got is our competitors have a much, much bigger base of athletic talent than what rugby does in Australia. So when you look at it, the, the benefits of the, of the programs which you've been running for the 10 years or so, you only start to appreciate now. So for anybody who thought just changing the coach from Robbie Deans or changing the jockey to Ewan McKenzie, and Ewan weighs a little bit more than Robbie, um, was going to change the performance of the horse, the Wallabies, it wasn't. And what Australian rugby needs to look at is to say that, and, and, and why is this an issue for the Players Association? It's an issue for the Players Association because we don't have the right programs in place to develop talent that at the end of the day is going to impact on the bottom line, it's going to impact on the jobs available for the players. <coughs> so we have been very active in promoting the need to improve the development pathways for players and for coaches in Australia so that we've got a better program in place. Our benchmark, our key benchmark are the Kiwis. And they have a different system in place. But as you, a lot of you would be aware, a number of our players in, from Super Rugby here at the moment playing in the NPC competition in, in, in uh, New Zealand. I mean, at the moment, you've got players playing over there to improve their development because you know, we haven't got sufficient depth in the competition here to be able to look after that. So it's important from our perspective, and it's something that we've been very active in, that in a way, I look at the role that myself and my colleagues play with the Players Association, there's a little bit something like uh, the trade union leader with uh, the Geelong uh, Ford Motor Company plant. At the end of the day, the most important thing for us that we rate is that we have five competitive and commercially viable rugby teams in Australia. And whatever it needs to be done to be able to produce those five competitive and commercially viable teams is something that, that, that is in our best interest because at the end of the day, they're jobs for our players. And it also means that the younger players who play underneath have something to aspire to. I mean, that's and so our, our role with the Players Association is much more broader than being a, uh, the, the basic trade union uh, and looking after the entitlements and making sure players don't get too drunk and looking after the you know the, the situations that are important to us, you know, such as illicit drugs policies and and things like that. But that the future of the game is important to the Players Association. So, I mean, the, the competition itself, as we said, the Super Rugby competition, and I've raised this with Bill Pulver as well, Bill quite often gets up and says, I want five top teams competing against the um, or making the potential to make the finals. If you've got a Super Rugby competition at the moment with 15 teams in it and only six teams can make the final, generally within Australia, that means there's only going to be two teams. Sometimes we've only had one. Yeah. But if those two teams, if you look at economically, who are the two hubs that drive Australian rugby commercially? There's Brisbane and Sydney. The Brumbies had 14,000 people to a semi-final the other night. How many people watched it on television? If the Reds are in or if the Waratahs are in, what is the impact not only on those two teams but the commercial impact on the Wallabies is multiplied many times over. So if you really analyse Australian rugby and the competition which we play in, the Super Rugby, and the five assets that we own in that, and the impact on the sixth, 
realistically, we have to have the Waratahs and the Reds make the finals nearly every year. Now, if those two teams make the finals every year, what does that mean for Perth, the Brumbies and the, and the Rebels? It means they can't make the finals. So if you haven't got a competitive situation where you can make the finals, then what happens to you? Eventually, you lose your sponsors, you lose your supporters, you lose your members, right, and you can't survive. So when you look at it, if we're playing in a 15-team competition, one of the other hard things is, and all due respects to the ladies here, you can say the same thing, that it's hard enough having one wife, let alone two, but it's probably hard enough having one husband, let alone two. But in ours, the AFL and the NRL both control their, their competitions. One of the problems that Australian rugby has is that it actually has two people to deal with in its competition, right? New Zealand and South Africa. They also don't play under the same set of rules as we play under. When I say not on the field, but as far as the organisation of your teams, they have different talent pools to draw from. They have different contracting systems. So we don't have a level playing field that runs across the Super Rugby 15. We also have a situation where insufficient because they don't have the NRL and the AFL to compete with, which we have in Australia. So when you look at it, you say the competition structure is flawed. If we want to run a Super 15 and Australia to suit Australia, then you need to have a final much greater than... We have to have a final eight out of Super 15. Now, some of these things look like being addressed as far as the new structure of the Super Rugby competition. And again, I mean, the Players Association analysis of these things is pretty important for us because at the end of the day, we still want to see the five commercially viable competitive sides. If the competition structure can't be run in a way which gives each side the opportunity to make the finals, then that's a major problem for us because we won't have five teams. The changes that have been, as I said before, that have been orchestrated at the moment by the SANSA will, get, you know, will hopefully alleviate some of those problems. But it is difficult when you have a competition where you don't have control across all of the teams or the same set of rules across all the teams, which is the advantage the AFL have and the NRL have. So rugby, as I say, has a lot of issues to confront and a lot of them are unique to Australia and different to the New Zealand and South African models. There's some of the things that, and as we come back to and talk about the player development pathway, is important to us so that we can be competitive across those Super Rugby games and with respect to the Wallabies. There's some of the things that have uh, probably been impacting fairly, um, fairly solidly on myself and my staff in our discussions um, on a collective bargaining agreement with the ARU, which probably reaches a hell of a lot more than just workplace entitlements and player education and welfare. Not many of my colleagues with the Cricketers Association or the, or the Rugby League Players Association, etc., or the AFLPA have those issues at the forefront at the moment because their respective games are under the same duress as our game is at the present time. The hard thing about it is, which I just spoke to Matt Rowley about and said, you know, with the jockey, the horse, the trainer, and, and basically the trainer means the program and the pathways, is that whilst our performance was very disappointing on Saturday night, um, in order to correct that, and you want to talk about generational change and culture, then it's going to take a fair amount of time and change needs to occur, otherwise you're going to get the same results continuing. So Australian rugby really has to go through change and it's a thing that people you know, in any business don't like. But at the end of the day, you either change, or as Charles Darwin said, you adapt to your environment or you're not here. I don't know if everybody's got any questions.